Hello, everybody. How are you Love doing today? Love Talk Radio. for your consideration. We're talking about soldiers in love, children in abuse, and spiritual mindfulness and the impact it has on your mental health and your well-being. So welcome today. I'm so glad you could come and join me. You can call in as a guest at 626-414-3510. Let's start talking about soldiers and love. When soldiers go away and they are in love before they go away, it can be a beautiful, beautiful experience because it has the impact of tremendous meaningfulness to have the love. It also has that sense of loss, and it reminds everybody that relationships are only there for a short time. In fact, any time you believe that a relationship is going to be there forever, know that is your illusion because if nothing else, people do die. So when soldiers go away, everybody's very conscious that soldier may not come back. And so to love that soldier as they depart is intensely positive, usually, unless, of course, people are defending themselves against feeling the sadness or the extreme pain of loss. In addition, the loved ones that are left behind, if they do not agree with the soldier's decision to leave, to fight, to battle, to return to that arena, if they feel abandoned and rejected, then they're not going to be feeling all the love because they're going to be very much stored up inside of their own very sad lossing losing experience. So soldiers and love do bring a lot of impact to our lives. When soldiers return, let's talk for a moment about that. When soldiers return to their loved ones, consider that no one is the same. That's right. Soldiers are not the same. Loved ones are not the same. Children are not the same. Everybody has changed, grown, developed, been independent, taken certain responsibilities, failed, had certain pains, had certain horrific sort of experiences. And so no one is the same. They've all gone through the the trials and tribulations of the situation. As a a consequence, the soldiers and the loved one often will feel a bit of estrangement. This isn't always the truth. This isn't always the case. But the estrangement, the feeling of, who are you? You are a stranger to me, and yet somehow you look somewhat familiar. You're different. You're not what I expected. You're not who I thought you would be when I returned. Of course, these different aspects of people's reactions are much different if the people have stayed very much in contact. Have they Skyped, written, phoned? What sort of contact did they have with one another? And the more contact and the more information they exchange about each other's life, the more they try to involve each other in the inside of what they've gone through and who they are and how they have changed, the more the other person will come back to a familiar individual. So that is one of the tricks of being a soldier and being a lover of a soldier is staying tremendously in contact, sharing with the person who's not there and sharing as if they are there so that they can feel it, know it, sense it, and experience it. But even with all of that sharing and communication, there's no way that what a soldier goes through can always be communicated. For one thing, it may just be too horrific to share. For another thing, it may violate certain uh, 
secrets that are just simply not allowed to be put into any sort of correspondence. But in addition to that, just consider, just consider for a moment that the soldier that comes back to you is hardened or scared or traumatized. Now you have a soldier who's gone to fight but has returned to you wounded. And if not wounded physically, definitely wounded in terms of their sense of peace, well-being, their identity of themselves, and their ability to come back to you being the person they used to be. And those cases also realize that there's a component called, you know, cultural shock. When you return back to your own former culture, but you've lived a long time in another culture where you have adjusted, remember, adjustment is a wonderful human capacity. We need to be able to be adaptable. But what happens upon returning to a former culture is that it is no longer viewed from the, the perspective of the uh, they had before they left, but instead they're now looking at it from the perspective from where they came. And you have no idea what that culture was like and the impact of what that thinking and experience and the people and the resources that were available. So I've heard this story from a wonderful communicator, Jay Crotemacher, who did a great documentary about what it is like to be a soldier returning home. And one of the things that he explained in his interview is that it is extremely common to come back and go into a grocery store and be overwhelmed with the choices. In fact, chagrined by all the choices, as if it just seems too, too, too greedy and indulgent. He has a story that he went to a restaurant and the girl in front of him in Beverly Hills was complaining about having too much of this or too much of that because it would have too many calories in it, of course, looking after her figures were so preoccupied to do. He said that it was just unbelievable to him that that type of preoccupation was taking that much angst and energy for that girl. So waking up, the soldiers waking up to whatever are your concerns when when we return, how empathic are they going to be? How understanding? How much are they going to participate? Or how much are they going to see it as you whining about things that are so small and insignificant? Be thankful might be the way they think. The best way to fight these sorts of complications, please. It's a pretty easy thing, but it's really hard to endure. One, be very, very patient with one another. Two, Communicate as much as you possibly can descriptively, not judgmentally and not defensively. Ask questions to each other about this, that, or the other, and try to be as open as you can to all the information shared without judgment, sustaining every sort of statement inside of you that wants to sit there and look down on something, be condescending toward or feel defended, defensive around. And then early to the communication, realize that there is a factor called time. Try to go and experience fun things together. Try to recapture experiences that were what were fun to do that had no conflict issues associated to them. Did you like to go bowling? Go bowling. Did you like to go horseback riding? Go horseback riding. Did you like to go to movies? Go to movies. Share together. Touch, love, hold, accept, be tolerant. Soldiers, when you return, you're not the same person. And you have to remember that you may have gone through a situation where two things may have occurred. You may have been battered to death, and so therefore you'll isolate yourself within kind of protective shell and not so available to open, loving, touching sort of interactions. You're going to have to 
tolerate the love that's being expressed towards you until finally your body, your skin, your soul becomes familiar once again with what it's like to live in a gentle environment. Secondly, realize that you might have come from a situation where you had the best camaraderie you have ever had in your life. After all, with the soldiers, you have shared experiences that you can't describe with anybody else. You have spent the days and the nights tucked away, having philosophical and deep conversations with them during the times that you were not embraced in whatever situation was difficult to tackle. So you may actually miss the camaraderie of that time and not know exactly how to capture that type of intense emotional connectedness with your family here back at home. Now remember, it will be a different type of connection, but do your best to see if you could possibly do the same sorts of activities you did with the soldiers here. For example, did you at nighttime have those talks around the campfire? Did you sit in the quiet of the dark and just stay together? Did you share jokes together as you were cleaning out your rifle or trying to get some sort of nutrition in your body? What was it like on the very basic level that allowed you to be open to your buddies? Was it sharing experiences where you helped others and you had intensely emotional moments? And try also to create that. There are plenty of opportunities here in the United States surrounding you where you can authentically, authentically be involved in emotionally powerful moments together with your loved ones and try to share those together. So having said that, take a tidbit, think about it, get back to me, and please do look up the book, Reuniting Soldiers with Families. You can find that on my website, drcarolfrancis.com. You can also uh, look at relationshipsuccessnow.com. There's a page dedicated to soldiers and their loved ones. I'd love very much for you to contact me, blog me, let me know what your topics and concerns are. Appreciate your time. Now we're going to move on to the topic of children and abuse, and we're going to take just a moment of pause. move on to children and abuse. Um, this is a tough situation. Because so much of the time you have children who are uh, are not able to talk about what they're going through. And sometimes you have children thinking that what they're experiencing is normal because they might have deserved to be spanked or hit or yelled at or screamed at. And parents, I want you to be really clear that there's a real big difference between an act of discipline or even an act of angry punishment uh, and the act of abuse. But in our day and age, we define abuse very differently than we might have 40 or 50 years ago. And that's a consequence of many things, one of which is the, the consciousness that children do have rights. When you realize that the Constitution of the United States or the Declaration of Independence did not include women, children, or slaves when they talked about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Let's do that again. They didn't talk about children, women, or slaves when Thomas Jefferson wrote about life, liberty, and happiness, the rights of every man to life, liberty, and happiness. So about 40, 50 years ago, we really did change a lot. I mean, women got their votes not too long prior to that, uh, their ability, their power to be able to to claim their rights, their civil rights, 
Um, but children began to get more of their sense of having a right as well, and they began to be protected as part of the individuals that were dependent. And so at that point in time, we really began to look at abuse very differently. You as parents, you must be extremely aware that when you are resorting to interfacing with your children out of a state of anger, that you can become so dominantly infuriated, you can walk in your fury so intensely that you can create a neurological experience, a biochemical process inside of their brain that begins to groove something that we call abuse, abused child. And that can make them have traumatic reactions. They can be overly sensitive to people being angry or they can be underly sensitive to people being angry. They can have startle responses, nightmares, daymares. They can be overly compliant with the authority figure. They can be um, oppressed and inhibited and, and seem like they're introverts when in fact they are not because they're just so used to trying to dodge the bullets of an abusive parent. So parents, you've got to be aware that the impact you have on your child, not only in the moment, but also in the long run in terms of the way their brain is being wired, is very much impacted by your expression of anger. Now, is anger normal? Oh, absolutely. Is it a response to a situation where you need something to be a little different or your child's not cooperating? Sure. Well, that's not what we're talking about. Being angry and being able to communicate in a way that is effective is so different than being angry and feeling like you have to somehow dominate or you have to destroy the person's well-being or you have to make them feel small and full of shame. And we find that small, full of shame and being dominated are very commiserate to types of abuse. And, and that's verbal. We move on to physical abuse. I think it's kind of evident. Anytime you put your hand in anger on any child, including spanking, you're going to be crossing a line. Now, spanking is still within that gray area, and I believe that there are times where a child receiving corporal punishment will actually be beneficial. And I also know that children that are hyperactive or have a tendency to be, uh, be very explorative and move outside the limits of what's right or wrong, they were going to provoke inside a parent an inclination to use physical or corporate punishment. But you're, you're working in a gray area there, and you have to be very careful as soon as you start touching any individual in a form of anger. If you do it in a controlled way where you're communicating, you're saying the spanking is because of, and then you spank them one or two times in a controlled fashion, that's very, very different than you're lashing out of them in an absolute state of rage. You must know that when your child does something and it provokes rage inside of you, that you have flipped a switch inside of you, that's very akin to what um, Almond and the Almond Clinics have discussed as the ring of fire. And when you go into your own ring of fire, you're not going to be thinking clearly, and you are going to be moving into actions that are really not okay, unhealthy for your child. So you have to realize that if you've been participating in that situation, your child has experienced that either in the hands of yourself another adult uh, in their lives, that the child abuse the child has experienced is going to impact them forever. Now, in some situations, when a child has learned to stand up to the situation, the bully has learned how to protect themselves from the bully in effective ways, has learned how to get away from the bully, avoid the bully, being able to comply on one level but on an emotional level, keep their soul quite separate from that person. In those situations, the person is surviving the bully. And on some level, that child is going to be better equipped to dealing with bullies than other individuals who have never experienced that type of impact. That can be very helpful. However, 
On the other hand, a child who has learned all those forms of self-defense can wall themselves off. They can become kind of paranoid. They can become misfitted. They can become very isolating. They can look introverted, but they're really not introverted just because they've got that protective layer on. And in terms of trust or love, those are two experiences they may be very hesitant to, to connect with or to resonate with. That's the pain. That's the destructiveness to their soul. Now, there have been many people who have overcome the experience of abuse and become very loving, very giving, and better parents because they know how horrible the experience was for them to be abused. But on the other hand, it's a difficult route to take, and we'd rather, we'd rather in the United States of America avoid these sorts of circumstances. However, the reason I bring up the United States of America is very important. Number one, this is an international program. But number two, there are many cultures where abuse not considered abuse. It's just considered a form of discipline. It's considered the parent's right, the way to treat a child. Child's in the wrong way at the wrong time. They can be tossed or turned away. It is very funny that in those particular cultures that they actually look at the child as a non-being. And we used to do that here in the United States as well. So interesting that those adults were once children. And they were once treated like they were non-beings. They were unimportant. They were servants. They were subordinates. They should not have had a voice. So that the act of civil rights for a child seems to be com- completely ridiculous. But at that time, in those places, in those ways, you have to realize that the mothers of those circumstances usually are very vexed, very pained by watching their loved children, as if the violation of the child has been against themselves. And in these cultures, we are beginning to find that the mothers, in fact, are standing up to the fathers at great deal of risk to themselves. It may be the mothers that stand up to get their own civil rights acknowledged, that move the children into a position of getting their civil rights acknowledged as well. So that is the consideration for child abuse for the day. And um, those of you who have been abused, please stand in there, stay in there, stand up for yourself, be very clear that you have so much to offer. Yes, your abuse has formed so much of your life, but there's so much more of your life to experience, to grow, to cultivate, that have absolutely no relevance to the abuse. And you want to be looking at that. You can create so much of your life that is way beyond whatever horribleness adults did to you as a child. So go forth and please feel free to contact me. You can contact me through drcarolfrancis.com. You can contact me also through relationshipsuccessnow.com and there is a page there specifically about spousal and child abuse. Okay, we're going to move into another topic called spiritual mindfulness, totally different in many respects. Let's take a moment to catch our breath, and I'll be back. Yes, we're back. (laughs) Guess what? The spiritual mindfulness is a very different topic than the other two that we're having today. The reason I'm putting this more optimistic end is that it is important for everybody to consider that living in a spiritual mindedness is actually very positive for your health. The research is out and it's extremely clear that people that participate in any sort of spiritual practice, uh, that they have much better health and more peaceful, they're more loving, they tend to look at the world from the standpoint of meaningfulness and existential joy and, and worthwhileness. They tend to engage a lot more random acts of kindness toward other people and promote the experience of compassion. Well, this isn't true completely across the board, 
but it does seem to be relevant to our life as human beings across this planet to have some sort of spiritual connectedness. I'm not going to be promoting any sort of spiritual point of view in this this particular section. Each of you, each of you out there, you all have unique personalities, you all have unique needs, you all have unique perspectives. I've written a book called Spiritual Path, Spiritual Gurus, Your Choice. Spiritual Path, Spiritual Gurus, Your Choice. And you can contact me at drcarolfrancis.com I'll get a copy of that book to you, or actually, it's going to be on ebook um, through Amazon and through Lulu. So, uh, the whole verb of that book is try to understand what your perspectives are and why why they're relevant to you, and then build upon those. Build upon them in terms of your way of meditating. Build upon them in your ways of praying. So, for example, let's just take meditation for a moment. Uh, meditation is often seen in the way that the Hindus would do it in terms of a sense of mindlessness, and that can have a pr- tremendous amount of results. You can go into this state where you're you're clear of the clutter in your brain, your thoughts are still, you're calm, you're rested. You can go into, so to speak, kind of like a hypnotic emptiness, a hypnagogic emptiness, and that can be very relieving. It can provide you the space of resetting yourself very much like if you turn off your computer and turn it back on and it goes all to the original set. That can be a great experience. I have found, though, for people who are very creative and very very thoughtful, that they actually are better off meditating more in terms of the indigenous indigenous, uh, shamanic practices. And I thank so much to Michael Harner for bringing that to the United States so that we can, and many others as well, so that we can really consider what it is like to sit down, close your eyes, do a rhythm, something that's very, very rhythmic, a little faster than your normal heart rate, listening to that until finally you begin to imagine. And you begin to imagine that you're visiting some other plane, some imaginative plane. You meet imaginative people. You ask real questions and you have your imaginative people give your answers. Now, when I say imaginative, realize that that many people believe that these are real spirit forms and spirit guides that you are connecting with and also the different domains. And that that type of guidance is extremely helpful. Shamans used to be able to use these spirit guides and perhaps do still, still to this day to be able to extract things in the soul that shouldn't be there and to be able to return things back to the soul that were once lost. It's an extremely, extremely powerful experience, something that I studied for a couple of decades, a very, very powerful form of meditation. Now, both of these types of meditations have a way of moving you out of your everyday functional existence, which is extremely helpful, and moving you into a space or a domain that is about the way you are inside yourself and your personality, the way you look at the world from a position of meaningfulness, whether there are spirits out there to help you, whether there is God available to you, whether there are angels that are available to you. And if you see any of those aspects of life whatsoever, it'll change when you open your eyes that the way you're going to interact with your everyday ordinary demands becomes in the flow of something that's bigger than you, a flow of something that if there's a negative moment, well, maybe you will take the richest component of that negative moment, walk with it and not be so riddled with or vexed with the antagonism associated to that negative moment. 
it breeds an ability to have more peace and gentility inside yourself, which makes you have a friendlier environment when you're in your relationship with yourself. Now, in contrast to the other two topics, soldiers who are faced with a tremendous amount of angst, negativity, and violence and fear, and children of abuse that are faced with a tremendous amount of violation of their physical well-being, their emotional well-being, this is in contrast to that. This is about being able to go into an internal world that reaches up and out and reaches deep inside and tries to commune on whatever way and whatever level, with whatever language, with whatever you can imagine it to be. And the reason I keep using the word is imagining is not because I'm trying to say it's inauthentic, like a fantasy, like a pretend. It may or may not be. I'm not here to judge that. But rather, it allows you to develop that rich internal world or connection with the unseen so that as you're walking through this material world with the seen, you have vaster, greater dimensions that are present with you simultaneously. And we can measure these things in the brain. We can measure what, where a person goes, how they improve their biochemistry when they pray or meditate. We can measure the improvement in the body in terms of all these neurotransmitters that improve where you're coming from. It's that phenomenal thing to me. I, in yesterday's show, I mentioned that there was some research where individuals were inside of a church and they were praying and meditating. Their serotonin levels changed, which means that they're going to be happier people. That's a wonderful, wonderful energetic neurotransmitter. It impacts your dopamine as well. But what was so interesting is that the people that were outside the church that had not attended meditation and spiritual prayer were also improved. For some reason, their serotonin level also was better. So as a consequence, is it possible that a spiritual mindfulness, a prayerfulness, an optimism is actually contagious? And I would suggest to you that it absolutely is. Because once you're walking in that kind of gracious, oh, I can't even say gracefulness, the graciousness of being, feeling like you're walking with a troop of people, spirits, that are there on your side to help you get through the day and optimize it, to help you look at every situation as a possible opportunity to help someone else or a possible way that it's going to aid you. As if you're walking in this this pleasant, positive experience, optimistic experience, that even though the circumstances are antagonistic, you're able to kind of see through it. The veil is lifted so you can see through it opportunity to mature something inside or be successful or be assisting us in a powerful, profound way. And just that experience of creating a sensation of meaningfulness changes everything about stress, depression, angst, and worry. The spiritual mindfulness, regardless of what your religious or spiritual beliefs may be, is a wonderful way to walk through this experience experience of being human. Well, thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening to all three of these dimensions of life. And I wish that after you've walked away from this, you would be able to breathe deeply, appreciate the people who have helped you like our soldiers, help those individuals that are in pain like abused children, and be able to take a deep breath for yourself knowing that you're not alone. This is Dr. Carol Francis. Take the best of care for the day. Bye-bye.